Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're handed this box of really unappetizing looking sort of medical dildos. You're given a big tube of medical lube, an instruction manual. This is pre-Google, pre-TikTok, all of that. And it's like, go get to work on making a vagina so you can feel normal and so you can have sex. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. Last fall, I got an email from a listener named Molly McGlynn. Hi, Kristen and Unladylike. I adore the pod. I'm a writer slash director with a movie coming out called Fitting In. It's loosely based on my very, all caps, unladylike experience of being diagnosed with MRKH syndrome when I was 16 and being told I don't have a uterus, will never get my period, and have a nearly absent vagina that I had to quote unquote make before I had penetrative sex. The film is about the horrifying emotional and physical nightmare this experience was, but with humor and heart. I'm attaching a few links about the movie, but I feel like there could be a cool opportunity to chat. Let me know if you'd like to connect. Keep crushing it. MRK what? And ladies, I've been researching and podcasting about female assigned bodies for well over a decade. Plus, there is the ongoing education that I get directly from y'all sharing personal experiences and asking questions about conditions like endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, vulvodynia, diastasis recti, stress incontinence. But MRKH syndrome was news to me. I'd never heard of this before. Molly is going to tell us more about it, but here is a quick snapshot of Meyer Rodicant Rokitan Meyer Rokitan Meyer Rokitansky Kusterhauser or MRKH syndrome. It's a genetic disorder classified as type 1 or type 2. For type 1, MRKH syndrome only affects reproductive organs. And like Molly described in her email, it means you are often born without a uterus and an underdeveloped vagina. You still have ovaries, a vulva, pubic hair, but no period because no uterus. For type 2 MRKH syndrome, it affects more than the reproductive system. Like you might be born with one kidney instead of two. It can also cause spinal abnormalities, hearing loss, and heart defects. And as for what causes it, I'm going to let y'all guess, okay? And here's a hint. It has to do with uteruses. So if you know that, then you know the chances are pretty good 
The doctors have no fucking clue why it happens. <laughs> and that is the case with MRKH syndrome. They know it's genetic, but exactly how it works, mm, TBD. What I did know, though, is that I had to talk to Molly and hear her story. I was also eager to learn more about Molly's movie, Fitting In, which received a ton of critical praise when it hit film festivals last year, including winning Best Canadian Film at the 2023 Vancouver Film Festival. It's now coming to theaters February 2nd. And yes, friends, if you're listening to this episode when it comes out, that means this Friday. My name is Molly McGlynn. I'm a writer and director living in Los Angeles. I direct a lot of television and am gearing up to release my second feature film that I wrote and directed called Fitting In, starring Maddie Ziegler and Emily Hampshire. The vagina really is just an amazing muscle. You're just going to have to stretch it out. Start off with this little fella, you know, and then you work your way up sort of to this guy. That's the dream there. What is yeah. MRKH syndrome? So MRKH is a mouthful. It stands for Meyer Rokitansky Kusterhauser syndrome, which was named after the four male doctors who I guess first, you know, discovered slash categorized it. It's one in 5,000, they say, which is more common than people would think. And it means that I was born without a uterus, a cervix, and uh, an underdeveloped vaginal canal. So this was an emotional landmine in my life when I was 16. It was first discovered when I wasn't getting my period and puberty had really already happened. So it's a very complex a uh, strange, isolating, confusing uh, condition to have. Some people who have MRKH consider themselves intersex, others do not. There's a lot of sort of contention around language and definitions and labels, which is all something I explore in the film. Before you were formally diagnosed, like, did you have any concerns or inklings at all that well, something was different about your body? No, I didn't. And it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about it. But I think, you know, it's not as uncommon as people think, as I was mentioning. And at the same time, I think because it involves you know, sexual sort of functioning, reproductive functioning with primarily female identifying people, it, it is, you know, mixed up with a lot of shame and secrecy as well, which is certainly something that I struggled with a lot with. This is the first film about MRKH. So I'm hoping it becomes more known, I would say. I, you know, would always look for little Easter eggs in pop culture of MRKH. And I think the book Little Fires Everywhere, there was a mention, there's a character who has MRKH, which I found so interesting. And I think one of the first media representations of it was Jacqueline Schultz, who was on Survivor years ago. My journey throughout this game is literally like a metaphor through my life. When I was 15, I was diagnosed with MRKH syndrome, which means I was born without half my reproductive organs. I was down and alone. And I, you know, came across her when I was 
a late teen. And I was so fascinated by her because she is this gorgeous blonde beauty queen and badass. And for her to be public about this was like a huge deal. But in terms of like thinking something was wrong with my own body, not really, but like I had a very different body type from my mom. My mom was, you know, petite, uh, flat chested. And I, you know, at 15, 16 was already much taller. I had big boobs, like I pubic hair, the whole thing. And she kept telling me she was a late bloomer and I was trusting her, but I, I knew in my gut something was up. Um, so that was later confirmed, but it typically is discovered when you would have had your period. And so walk me through that diagnostic process and how it was described to you, because I would imagine just putting myself back in my own 16 year old mind and body like that, that would be a lot. It was it was very, very blurry. I have a patchy memory. A lot of it is that is related to, you know, deeply traumatic (laughs) moments of our past. Uh, We kind of get these memories in piecemeal. And it was so interesting because when I was writing the script in my 30s, I really had to sort of recall things I had pushed away. But, you know, at the time, I was still seeing this pediatrician in New Jersey with like wood paneled walls and you know, his basement office with like clown art everywhere. He was a great guy, (laughs) but like not (laughs) equipped for this. And um, he had referred my mom and I to a gynecologist. And that was my first like moment being thrust from this pediatrician's office into a gynecologist, which happened quickly and was very traumatizing. I couldn't tell you even now if the diagnostic period was like a few weeks or a few months. I think it was probably a few weeks, but you know, it involved ultrasounds, uh, MRIs, a blood test to confirm my XX chromosomal makeup, which, you know, you can imagine is very confusing for both (laughs) a teenager and their parents. My parents were uh, in the middle of a divorce or had divorced, but it was all a mess. My mom was recovering from breast cancer and the doctor, when I was diagnosed, was reading from a huge medical textbook, had clearly never heard of it before. And, you know, you, one day you're in the pediatrician's office and then a few weeks later, you're told that you'll never have your period. You don't have a uterus. You'll never carry a child. And in order to have penetrative sex, you have to use medical dilators, which it can be a really stressful and traumatic part of the process. But I think there's been a lot of development since I was diagnosed about the approach to it. But essentially, I was getting like, as I said, emotional bombs in regards to being a mother, my self-conception as a woman and what that means and my ability to have penetrative sex. And so at 16, I had internalized that my function is to be a vessel for a penis. Basically this was without a 
consulting me if I was ready to have that kind of sex, B, if I was heterosexual. It, when you think about it, really distills so much of patriarchal expectations on women's bodies. So this condition is really interesting in that sense because, you know, the question becomes what is a female's body for if it doesn't bleed, can't carry a child, and has to be made to accommodate a penis, basically. Was there any kind of health-related reason for sending you home with these dilators and immediately jumping to that conclusion and prescription for you as a teen? No. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I completely understand what you mean. And I, I was a healthy teenage girl, but what the approach was at that time was a version of gender confirmation surgery. And it was to normalize me. And basically, I was told to fix myself. So I internalized a lot of deficiencies. But I, I was healthy. I didn't even realize there was two types of MRKH until I was in college. And I had reached out to an MRKH specialist who happened to be teaching at the university I went to. And she said, you know, do you know what type of MRKH you have? And I had no idea there was two. So, you know, she said, do you have two kidneys? Have you had a hearing test? Do you have any skeletal ab abnormalities? So, you know, I remember sending my mom an email being like, uh, I had some tests done and, um, you know, there is a possibility I was born also with only one kidney, but I have two. So it looks like I have type one MRKH. So it just goes to, you know, confirm how little we know about women's bodies and reproductive systems, because I, I had no idea that was even an option. What did you also kind of do with this information, this knowledge about yourself? You know, obviously your parents knew, but did you have any kind of outlet to talk about it or process it? That's strange. Like, I'm the youngest of five girls in a big Irish Catholic family. As I mentioned, my parents were divorced and my mom was recovering from cancer and my dad was living out of state. So they did their best. I don't think anyone knew the extent of which I was emotionally suffering, not to mention the physical discomfort of the dilating process. Um, my mom at the time, I think, wanted to protect me. So she sort of insinuated that maybe it's not something I should share with everyone, which then further added to the shame. My best friend was sort of all-American girl, perfect family, homecoming queen, all of that. And she's still my best friend. And I was very selective in what I told her. It was like, oh, I don't get my period. I don't have a uterus. But I was uncomfortable talking about the dilating process and what it meant for me in terms of my sexual experiences. So I was trying to just scoot by, but really struggling inside. You know, this time of our life coincides with, you know, sexual exploration and alcohol and all of that. And alcohol was something that entered the chat in a way that I think was helping me cope and 
fit into social situations and sort of escape my body in a way that definitely became unhealthy for me. And I'm now sober, which is something that's really important to me and has been a key part of me existing in my body without trying to jump out of it. Does MRKH have any effect on your capacity for sexual pleasure? Because there is obviously like the, the vaginal canal part of it, but also mm-hmm. clitorises that, are outside the body. Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. And again, so much comes up with this diagnosis, but... No, I have a very fulfilling sexual life and capacities. And, you know, all of our experiences of pleasure, I think, are subject- subjective to us. You know, like, mm-hmm. we can only experience our own pleasure. And I, we won't be able to feel what it feels like for someone else. But for me, it has been great. It's definitely been a, maybe more of a process to, like feel comfortable in my body. But, you know, I, I wish that when I was diagnosed, it, it was presented also with the information of like, this does not necessarily have any effect on your ability to orgasm or have pleasure or even talk about what sex is. Sex is not just penis and vagina. And even teenage girls without MRKH, this is just the assumption of what it is. And there is a severe lack of sexual education in terms of what sex and pleasure even is. As I said, I'm, I'm grateful for my sexual experiences and capacities and all of that. And um, I can only speak for myself. But for people with MRKH, there is no reason, you know, asterisk always, that you can't have a fully satisfying sexual life. It just goes to show how much like reproductive potential, the idea of motherhood, womanhood, like all of it is just flattened down into one thing. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, it is to accommodate, to accommodate a male body part, to accommodate a child, you know, like, so it's such an interesting experience to remove that. And like, I've also thought of, the fact that sex for me is only about pleasure because I have never had the concern or worry about getting pregnant and thinking about how also in some ways there's a freedom to that, which, you know, not everyone is going to see it that way. But in time, I'm like, I don't have to ever think about that. I don't have to take birth control or all of that, you know, that being said, there is an enormous loss of my choice to carry a child and whether or not I would want to, the point was that the option was stripped and that was where the pain came in. Was there a point in your life where you started to really kind of reconcile your own relationship with your body and start feeling more at home in your skin and who you are? You know, I think, to be honest, it's only happened in the past few years, which has coincided with me making this film fitting in that I was uh, talking about in the beginning, 
which forced me to confront all of this pain publicly, like both in when I shot the film and when I screened it, it premiered at South by Southwest and played in Toronto and is going to be in theater soon. But to expose myself to the experience of talking about this publicly and realizing it's okay. And I'm, you know, I don't really care what people think anymore. I think that my sobriety has been a tremendous reason for my ability to feel comfortable in my body. I am engaged to an amazing person who I feel safe with and loved. So, you know, all of those things are interconnected. But I think with anybody, the longest relationship in your life is going to be the one with yourself and your body. And it's this living, breathing, evolving thing that we constantly have to negotiate. You mentioned your sobriety and your first movie, Mary Goes Round, was kind of loosely based on your own experiences Mm -hmm. with addiction. So how did bringing this loosely based on yourself story to screen compare to that? Mary Goes Round was my first film, came out in 2017. I was not sober at the time. So it was this weird thing where I think I was working through some themes in my life that I did not yet have the ability or really courage to address head on, but I was exploring in my work. But I think because I publicly sort of relied on my out of saying it's fictionalized and this is a character and it's not me and all of that is true of course but I wasn't ready to say how personal it actually was whereas when I wrote and made fitting in I knew that I had to own the narrative and be willing to talk about it not only for myself but because you know, I want to be an activist through my work and to destigmatize shame for people. So it, it was very, very scary to put myself out there in this way. I was, you know, nervous about getting it wrong or being misinterpreted or criticized. And for the most part, people have been extremely receptive and have gotten it. And I'm very aware that this is just one story. I am a white woman who inherently has privilege in the medical space. I am not the right person to tell the experience of being diagnosed with this as a woman of color. And I think there are so many other stories to tell about our bodies that I hope I get to see. So Maddie Ziegler, like you mentioned, is uh, starring Mm -hmm. in Fitting In. How did you work with her, like through this role in particular and kind of embodying what it meant for you to learn of this diagnosis? I, I just adore Maddie so much. But when I first met her, when I was casting the film, to be honest, at first, I thought she was too beautiful and 
I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, and I met her at a coffee shop and she like showed up with wet hair and untied sneakers and (laughs) ordered a cookie. And I was so struck by the, the sort of depth and life that she brought in a way that was different than the world perceives her or how social media is. And I think she's someone who, for different reasons than me, had a very unusual upbringing through dance moms and the reality world. She knows what it feels like to be at odds with your body and to push your body and mind to to the brink. She has a wisdom and depth about her that few people in this age range had. And for me, it was just such a guttural instinct with her. It's not, the role is not easy to play. She had to make herself extremely vulnerable and she took it on. She never questioned anything. She trusted me. She she trusted me. She did research. Um, I connected her with MRKH people who graciously shared their experience with her. You know, it's interesting on YouTube, a lot of the content about vaginal dilation that I found was from trans women. So sending her a lot of those videos and like just, she just dove in. Um, And she's also a dancer primarily. So her ability to convey with her body something that is impossible or difficult to articulate with words is really unique to her. I'm just, I'm so impressed with her. I think when people see the film, they're really going to see a whole new side of her. And tell me about the role that you wrote of one of Maddie's friends in the movie Jax. Yeah, so this film is contemporary. And I wanted to write an intersex character who would be a foil to Maddie's character in the sense that they were more evolved in terms of their acceptance and comfort with their identity in the world and B offered an opportunity to talk about or ask questions about where MRKH fits into the intersex definition, which is just any non normative reproductive parts, essentially. So this role was really important to me. I would not cast or I would not have shot the film unless I found an intersex person to play that character. There is not a lot of diversity or visibility within the world of casting. It does not mean that there are not intersex actors. It may mean that they're not out publicly. I found an actor named Kai Griffin, who is based in the UK, who had previously been on Hollyoaks, a British soap, as I believe the first non-binary character in British daytime television, which was a big deal. And they embodied what the character of Jax was, which was a a person who enters the, the protagonist played by Maddie's life with confidence, humor, sexiness, and sort of provokes her to think about her position in the world. I didn't want to have an intersex character whose main function was trauma. I didn't, I just didn't want to 
show that side so much. You know, I, I touch upon Jax's narrative, but I also wanted to see an intersex character who was joyful and felt confident and could be like a beacon of hope for the protagonist. Well, and it seems like you, you took that whole sensibility to the entire movie because obviously it's dealing with traumatic elements for sure but am I right in saying it's ultimately a comedy yeah it it is one of my dear friends Marnie refers to our bodies as like meat suits like (laughs) it's we're all dragging around these meat suits and some people's do this and other people's do that and I'm not trying to minimize the impact of this condition you know but with some wisdom and time I have looked at it a little differently and I think it doesn't need to be the end of the world. And it certainly felt like that in the moment. And I also wanted to get as many people to watch this film who may not otherwise like find themselves watching it. And sometimes that's through humor and joy. So I wanted to make something that was appealing to commercial viewers and was going to bring bring them into the story, and they might think it's like, okay, coming-of-age high school film, and then everything gets flipped on their head, and they hopefully walk away thinking about things that they didn't previously. But the way I cope as a person has always been humor. It's my life raft, and, you know, it's just bodies. <laughs> yeah, I think in... uh an essay that you wrote about making the film, you you said something along the lines of like, nothing is funnier and sadder than a body, (laughs) which I just really, (laughs) I really loved. (laughs) It's true. Like, you know, all of our bodies are, you know, these things that have given us amazing gifts and betrayed us when we least expect it. So I'm not, again, trying to take away from some of the heavier losses and questions, but, you know, from where I stand, I'm also, I'm healthy and my body has given me so much. It's not maybe how most other women's bodies work, but that's okay. What has it been like to have people see this film? And I don't know, has anything surprised you at all? in terms of just it being out in the world? So much. I mean, I'm really grateful for the most part. Audiences and critics have really, I think, responded to it and gotten what I've tried to do. But the things that touch me the most are people I speak to after a screening. Um, when it premiered at South by Southwest last March after the screening and I finished talking to people, there was a young woman on the street and she was kind of looking to chat and she was a little shy. So I said, are you, are you trying to say hi? And she had some sort of developmental disability. I'm not sure what we didn't get into that, but she said, thanks for making that movie. And it made me feel like, I can call myself beautiful Hmm. and she was crying and I started crying and I just hugged her 
And in that moment, I'm like, this is why I do it. It's so someone who has struggled to see their beauty or place in the world that is wanting us to just check a box and get on with it, um, is able to see their beauty and value. And like, I will take that comment any day over any review. And this is why I'm doing it. It's for people who maybe haven't seen themselves on screen. If you could go back and tell your 16-year-old self anything, what would it be? I think I'd say that it is simultaneously so much worse and better than you could have ever dreamed. And the pain that you're in will one day be a gift. Well, is there anything else about fitting in, MRKH, that you want to make sure on ladies know? I also have a podcast called Hello, My Mom is Dead that is similarly in this sort of traumedy space dealing with mother loss. So um, if people want to check that out, they can. If you would like to know more about MRKH, you can go to Beautiful You. It's a great MRKH organization that has been a huge resource for me. And the best way to find me is probably on Instagram. Okay, unladies, it is that time. The time when I ask, what do you think? Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send me emails or voice memos Thank you so much to Molly McGlynn. You can follow Molly on Instagram at Molly Mary McGlynn. Also, go see Fitting In. I got to get my ticket. Here's another hot tip for you. Subscribe to the Unladylike newsletter. It is a weekly newsletter where I pull out some of my favorite facts and stats from episodes on the main feed and in the Unladies Room Patreon. It's a good time. Sometimes the news is bleak, but usually there's, I I make sure there's always at least something in there to give us a little bit of relief. You can subscribe at unladylike.substack.com. Coming up this weekend in the Unladies Room, I am doing a deep dive on divorce. Because did you know, 70% of divorces between men and women are initiated by the women. 70%. We are the divorcing sex, to put it in very binary terms, okay? You can also follow Unladylike on Instagram and TikTok at Unladylike Media. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, hosted, written, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most Unladylike thing about you? That I had to make a vagina. (laughs) Ha <laughs>